that he loves you and I. You want to know something about God? Our God is merciful. He is compassionate. And you know, it's even better than that. God doesn't just say, it's like a mother with a nursing baby. Look uh, in Isaiah. Isaiah 49. It takes this illustration and goes one step further. Isaiah 49 and verse 15. Isaiah 49, 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. God says there's more chance that a mother who's just given birth to a baby will forget her baby than there is me forgetting you. Pretty strong, incomprehensible love, isn't it? How would you describe a mother who's just given birth to a baby? Would you say she's disinterested in the baby? Say she's disengaged, doesn't really care? Throw mind on other things? No, completely focused on the welfare and well-being of that child. And God says, that's nothing compared to the love that I have for you. Even mothers will forget their own child before I'll forget you. And that's the first thing you need to know about our God. He is merciful and compassionate. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, and he says, I get on my knees before God, and I pray that you will just have the strength to comprehend the love of God. Not that you'll have the strength to do the love of God or to practice the love of God. I pray that you'll have the strength to comprehend it because it is so rich and so deep. He says, I pray that you will come to understand what is the height and the breadth, and the depth, and the length of God's love. God's love is so rich and so deep, it will not come naturally. You will not understand. There is nothing in this world. The closest thing to it, God says, it's, it's more than that. It's richer than that. So this morning, let's talk about God's love. Let's try to understand the length, and the breadth, and the height, and the depth of God's love. For you and I, we're also that love that we need to be trying to, to live. To understand love, we have to turn to one chapter in, in our Bible. It's one of the most quoted pieces of, of writing in all of literature. In the past 2,000 years, it's been featured in wedding upon wedding, in funeral upon funeral. It's found itself in the decorations of many homes. It's what we call the love chapter. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. Let's just spend some time trying to comprehend God's love. In fact, let's start with a prayer. Let's echo that prayer of Paul that we will be able to comprehend what is the height, the depth, the breadth, and the length of God's love. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we come and look at your scriptures as we come and look at love and try to understand your love for us. Please help us. Please open our minds to receive this scripture, to understand what it means, to comprehend with all the saints what your love means for us. We understand that it is too 
great and too powerful for us to ever fully comprehend. But help us this morning to get another glimpse into your love. Help us to dig deeper into your character, your abundance of mercy and compassion you have for every single one of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Corinthian church was a terrible church, possibly the worst church that ever existed. The Corinthian church is the church that you should go to and read about if you're ever feeling bad about your own church. If you ever think we've got problems, you go and read the book of 1 Corinthians and you'll see it's not that bad. It's really not that bad compared to what they had. They had people who were openly divided, listening to different people. They had brethren who were actually in law courts suing one another. They had people who were deliberately going out and offending each other. They were saying, if this is going to offend you, it's my right to do it, and I'm just going to sit here and offend you anyway by eating this meat that's offered to idols. They had people in the congregation who were, who were in, involved in, in awful, awful sin. It was just going unchecked. No one was bothering to make a fuss about it. And their worship services were perhaps the worst part. In their assemblies, they would come together and everyone would use the assembly to try and promote themselves, to stand up and to try and show off how good they are and how many talents they had. This was a terrible, terrible congregation. Uh, thankfully, God gave Paul the job of writing to them with the help and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. If it was my job, I wouldn't have given them a letter, I would have given them a demolition truck. <laughs> would have bulldozed it to the ground and started again. congregation filled with so many problems and Paul says you know Paul's going to have to pull something pretty special out of the hat to fix this one and Paul's a good writer he's very eloquent he's able to you know work his way with, with some pretty beautiful words but he's going to have to do something really special to change a congregation so corrupt so completely wicked and so when we look at 1 Corinthians 13 Sometimes people separate it. They use it as if it's like a, a little poem that was written on its own. They remove it from its context, as if Paul just wrote this, this poem about love. He's not writing a poem about love. He's writing a letter to the most evil and wicked people to ever call themselves Christians. He's writing to some really horrible, rotten-to-the-core people. And in the middle of this, he injects what is the solution to their problem. And I bet you 99% of the problems in your life, in your congregation, in your marriage, in your family, in your workplace, the solution is here. 99% of the time, I'm sure. Paul writes them this letter and, and says, if you really want to fix things, if you really want to get things straight, this is what you need to know about love. And, and in a congregation where everyone was saying, well, this is what's important, you know, speaking in tongues is important, no prophecy is important, no, um, not eating meat offered to idols is important. He says, no, I'm going to show you a better thing. I'm going to show you something that's more important, more excellent, more grand than all of those things. Put everything aside and focus on this. The most excellent way, he calls it. And he starts in chapter 13, uh, verses, 13 verses 1 through 3. Let's read this together. 
It says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels that have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains that have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned that have not love, I gain nothing. And keep on expanding on these and apply them to your own life. If I study theology, if I achieve academic success, if I sell books that reach millions of people, if I'm able to teach the Bible to people and understand it better than anyone else, if I'm able to achieve this intellectual, spiritual success, my quotes are remembered for years to come and have not loved. It is worthless. It is a wasted life. If I'm the most generous giver in this congregation, if I give more money than the rest of you, if I give more time than the rest of you, if I give more effort than the rest of you, and have not love, I am nothing. Not I am lacking, not I, I should have something else and, and that'll make it better. I am nothing. Paul makes that very clear. There's no other way to translate that Greek word there. There's no way to make it less severe. He means it. You are nothing without love. If I vacuum these floors, if I clean these toilets, if I teach Sunday school, if I lead songs that don't do it motivated by love, I am nothing. If I have people over for dinner, if I show the best hospitality, if I read my Bible every single day, if I memorize scriptures more than you can imagine, if I pray without ceasing, if I attend every service that this congregation has, if I sing the songs, if I pray the prayers and have not love, I am nothing. Nothing. If I work 40 hours a week to put dinner on the table for my family, if I slave in the kitchen feeding my family, if I pay the bills, if I mow the lawns, if I wash the windows, if I change the nappies, if I pack the lunches, but have not love, I am nothing. You can fill in whatever you did this past week. Fill in whatever you filled your, your weekend and say, but have not love, I am nothing. Well, what about what have you got planned for this week? And now put after it, but have not love, I am nothing. Puts things in perspective, doesn't it? So then Paul, after he sets this up, he tells you exactly how important this is. He's going to describe love in many different ways. And for most of the, the uh, passages that we're going to look at, he actually puts them in couplets. So he describes love in, in uh, it's almost like taking a coin and he says there's two sides of it. There's this side and there's that side. There's two aspects of love. Uh, that go hand in hand. So let, let's go through this together. In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. He starts off and he says, Love is patient and kind. I actually prefer the New King James Version. Love suffers long and is kind. Because patience, that gives you the, the idea of, you know, you're waiting in traffic for a little bit. Or, or you're waiting for the doctor's surgery for a little bit while, <coughs> sorry, we've got a five-minute delay, I hope that's okay. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about long-suffering. He's talking about 
suffering in your life for a long period of time and still being fine. Now you see how these are kind of two um, sides of the same point. Now, now patience <coughs> is a reactive thing. Patience is about when you're put in difficult circumstances, when people are being difficult to you, when things are really hard on you, patience is how you react to them. Whereas kindness is kind of the opposite of that. It's not about reacting to things, it's being proactive about things. Saying, regardless of what you do, I'm going to be kind. Regardless of what happens in my life, whether it's a good day or a bad day, whether I'm treated well or treated poorly, it doesn't matter what anyone does, I'm going to choose to be kind. It's so simple, isn't it? We teach our kids to be kind. We know that we should be kind. We talk about kindness all the time, and that it's, it's just the simplest thing that, that Paul comes to and says, if you want to have love, have to show patience and kindness. Whether it's on day one, whether it's on day 100, whether it's on day 1000. Suffer for a long time and be kind. How long has God suffered and been kind? How long has he been mistreated by us? How long has his love been abused time and time again? And he has responded with kindness. Love does not envy and it doesn't boast. Envy is when I see something of yours that I want. It's covetousness, it's, it's jealousy. Envy is when I want your life or I want your money or I want your success or your charisma or your beauty or your charm or your house or your wife or your kids or your sporting ability or your leadership ability or your communication ability or something petty, you know, something like you tell jokes and people laugh, and no one laughs at my jokes, so, <laughs> see? <laughs> and, and seeing that in other people and wanting that's envy. It doesn't belong to the person who is full of love. Boasting is the other side of that point. Boasting is about trying to put envy in other people. Boasting is about elevating your life in such a way that you're deliberately showing off and making others envious. And both are not fitting for a Christian showing love. New King James says love doesn't parade itself. I think that's a really good picture that you can see in your mind. Do you expect your life to be like a parade? When you're walking down the street in the middle and everyone's on the sidelines clapping you and cheering you and throwing confetti at you, celebrating your life? That's parading yourself, isn't it? When you walk into a room, do you, do you expect people to notice you and to appreciate you and to um, show you how much they love you? It's nice to get those things, but is it is it your motive? Is it my motive when I walk into church to be noticed and to be celebrated, to be appreciated, for people to say that they uh, appreciate me and notice me? Have you ever driven out of here and gone, well, no one noticed me? No one paid attention. We've got to be really careful that we're not parading ourselves, that we're not making our life into a parade where we're expecting people to clap and cheer. Love doesn't do that. Love is not arrogant and it's not rude, not puffed up, some translations would say. I like the idea of puffed up, um, being, you know, inflating your ego as if someone's got a, a, a bike pump and they're just pumping air into you to make you bigger and bigger and bigger. 
Arrogance is about thinking very highly of yourself. Do you think you're the best person in your marriage? Do you think you're the best person in your family? Do you think you're the best person in your congregation? You're on very dangerous grounds when we start thinking like that. When we inflate our ego. When we put others down so that we can puff ourselves up. If you can look around at this congregation and the first thing that comes to your mind when you see one of your uh, brothers or sisters in Christ is, is something that they're doing wrong or something that you think you're doing better, that's arrogance, that's puffing up. It's not the way of love. And love isn't rude. I like what the New American Standard Version says. It says, love does not act unbecomingly. I like it if parents spoke like this. You know, instead of saying you're being rude, you say, you're acting unbecomingly, Daniel. Rudeness is about when you don't care what other people think. It's about saying, I don't care whether you think, whether you're offended by this. I don't care whether you're offended if I eat with my mouth open or put my elbows on the table. I don't care if, if I live my life in this way, that's up to me, and I don't care whether it offends. It's rude. It's not what that means. God doesn't offend people um, through willful action. Sure, he offends people through sticking to the truth. Sure, his adherence to his character will offend people inevitably. But if possible, so far as depends on you being peace with all people, Romans 12. And then he says, love doesn't insist on its own way. We know this in theory, but we very rarely practices. Um, New King James says, it doesn't seek its own. It does not do things in its own way. It doesn't say, it's my way or the highway. It doesn't say, you do it this way, or else I give up, or else I quit, or else I'm anything. Romans 12 and verse 10 says something very similar, to give preference to one another. It means when I have an opinion, and you have an opinion, I give preference to your opinion. And if you're a strong Christian, and if you really love people, that's what you'll do. When it comes to decisions that we have to make around the church, when it comes to different options, you know, there's nothing wrong with either one. If I have a preference and you have a preference, if I am living according to God's love, I will cater to your preference. I will say, instead of saying things like, well, this is what suits me, and this would be convenient for me, I should be asking questions like, what would be helpful for you? How can I make things easier to move along? If you're filling your uh, vocabulary with I, 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 I want this done this way, I think it would be done better if it was this way, that's not the way of love. And you might be thinking, yeah, I understand that. You, you don't insist on your own way, you listen to other people. But here's the problem with this verse. What if someone else has a dumb idea? What if someone else has a really silly, nonsensical, moronic idea? Do you have to let them get their way? Surely you can insist on your way if it's if it's really silly or if it's not true or something like that. Imagine I came in here this morning and I said, look, oh, church, I've got a great idea. All of our songbooks, I think we should paint them bright orange. I think we should put fluorescent, glow-in-the-dark, pink polka dots all over them. So when we're singing at night, we'll just see a sea of polka dots out there. Now, that is a moronic idea, isn't it? That's, that's a silly idea. Do you have to respect that idea? Absolutely. You have to respect that idea. 
This is not you respect good ideas or you respect um, ideas that are very similar to yours. This is you respect people even in their silly ideas. Even if people have a preference and you don't understand it, even if you think, how can you think that way? How do you do that? How do, why would you come up with that idea? You still must respect and not give offence to people. If you don't believe me, just read 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul's just told them to do that. There were people in Corinth who were saying, there's this meat, it's been offered to an idol, and because it's been offered to an idol, I feel like I can't eat it. I feel like uh, it would be wrong for me to eat it because it's been offered to that idol instead of being offered to the true God. And Paul, and read through 1 Corinthians passage, this is what it says. Paul says in the... New Daniel paraphrase translation, NDT, whatever. Um, he says, that's a dumb idea. That's a silly idea. It's not true. You can eat meat offered to idols. It doesn't matter. Idols aren't real. Idols don't have any power. So you can eat meat that's offered to anything. So what do you do when you come across a silly idea like that? What do you come across an idea? What do you do when you come across people who hold to silly ways? Paul says, you still have to. You still can't offend people over it. You still have to give preference to other people. And look, if I come in here and I say that we should paint the song books orange, thankfully there are enough sensible people here that you're going to overrule me and say it's a ridiculous idea and, and you'll hopefully bring me along with that. You still need to respect the idea. You still need to give preference to other people. And you know what? It doesn't actually matter what colour the song books are. And if 90% of the congregation agrees with me and agrees to do a silly thing like paint songbooks orange, it doesn't matter what colour the songbooks are. And it might be against your preference. Love does not insist on its own way. And in optional matters, even if you think it's silly, you have to give preference to your weaker brethren. You have to give preference to the other person. What love does, Paul says it very clearly in 1 Corinthians 8, repeats it here in 1 Corinthians 13. Of course, there are times when, you know, if someone came in here and said we should convert to Buddhism, and we don't have to respect, uh, we, we, we don't have to agree with that idea, we don't have to allow them to get their way. If someone came in here and said, alright, you know, I'm, I'm going to, um, I think we should sell the building, and I think we should uh, meet on top of a mountain every Sunday morning. Of course, we can respect that idea, we can say thanks for your participation, but, but we are going to do things um, in a slightly different way. But brethren, this, is, this means something. And you've got to be applying it somewhere in your life. And if you're splitting life into essential ideas and silly ideas, and you're saying, well, I'm always going to insist on the essentials, and then everything else is just a silly idea, and I'm not going to even give it time, I don't think we're living up to this. Love is not irritable, and it is not resentful. These are, again, two sides of the same point. Um, it's not irritable means not easily angered or not provoked. Do people provoke you? Do you get provoked by annoying people? Do you get irritated very easily? It's not the way of love. It's a, it's a habit, and we need to train ourselves out of that habit. What about resentfulness? Resentfulness is not about getting angry quickly, like irritability. It's about getting angry over a long period of time. It's about holding on to anger and keeping on bringing it up. Are you, you know, am I continually talking about that one time that I got hurt by those people? Or am I constantly talking about 
um, that, that one thing that happened to me a couple of years ago that you did that I just can't seem to let go of. It's resentment, it's not the way of love. And, and the writer of Hebrews warns us, see that no root of bitterness springs up among you. Don't be bitter, don't be holding on to things. As much as it is in your power, let those things go. Verse 6, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Again, two sides of the same form. Doesn't rejoice when, when wrong things happen. Doesn't rejoice at sin. Doesn't rejoice whether it's the recipient or someone else is the recipient of some uh, gain that was, um, that was brought about by unlawful means. God is not only God of justice, he, he loves justice. He loves people being accountable. And he loves bringing justice to the powerful and also to the vulnerable. Love in verse 7, Paul finishes with four quick fire things. Love bears all things. The word bear means to cover or to protect. Some versions will say love to protect. The idea is that if I do some wrongs, you're not going to jump on me and point out my wrongs. You're going to cover for me. You're going to protect me. If I'm in a state where I'm vulnerable, where I've done the wrong thing, or I'm caught up in a, in a tricky situation, that's an opportunity for you to pounce on me. And, and if you're not loving, you will jump on that situation and hurt and cause harm. But if you're loving, you will seek to cover for me. You'll seek to protect me, even at my most vulnerable. Love believes all things. What does it mean to believe all things? Surely we shouldn't believe everything. Surely fools believe everything. What does it mean when Paul says love believes all things? Um, in 2005, Marcus Buckingham wrote a book, and it was called The One Thing You Need to Know. And he talked about a 20-year study of happy couples in the US and the UK and Europe. These were couples that had stayed together for at least one decade, if not more, and they had been happy throughout it. So he was trying to find the common denominator between relationships that went the distance and that were happy. Not talking about relationships that they stuck together for 40 years, that they were miserable, they were always fighting and bickering. But what do happy couples have who have stuck together for decades and decades and remained happy in the end? What's, what's the one thing they have in common? So the researchers assumed that what they would find is that happy couples who have been together for a long time have a very realistic evaluation of their spouse. They really know their weaknesses and their strengths, but, but you know, not think too highly of them, just, just correctly evaluate them. You'd think that that would be the case. Over time, when your spouse doesn't you know, meet your expectations, you lower your expectations, and then they meet your expectations and, and everything's okay. You would expect that that would happen, but the opposite happened. In this study, it showed that the happy couples were the people who consistently had a higher view of their spouse than the spouse had of themselves. So the wife had a higher view of her husband than the husband had of himself. So they asked the wife, you know, evaluate your husband. How loving is he? How caring is he? Uh, how patient is he on a scale of this to this? And then they asked the husband, how patient are you? How loving are you? How caring are you on a scale of this to this? And all of the happy couples had this in common. On every scale, they thought their spouse was better than their spouse thought that they were. They had a better view of their spouse than the spouse had of themselves. Now this is why this is so powerful. In all relationships, 
You're going to have expectations and you're going to have reality. And expectations can be something like she said that she'd cook dinner or he said that he'd vacuum or pick up the money or pick up the kids or whatever like that. And then there'll be the reality and, and these things don't always happen, do they? They didn't have dinner ready, they forgot the kids, they didn't pick up the money, whatever it was meant to be. And in between what you expected to happen and what really happened, you're going to have a gap. And you're going to have to fill that with something. And you can choose to fill it with two things. You can either believe the best of that person, or you can assume the worst of that person. What's easier to do? I think it's easier to assume the worst of that person, isn't it? We've been let down by people, we're not in their situation, we don't know their struggles and their trials, and it's easy to assume the worst. Happy couples believe the best. Happy relationships are founded when there is a gap between what I expected to happen and what really happened. And I'm going to find the most generous explanation for my wife or for my friend or for my family member, and I'm going to choose to believe it. Until the evidence shows me otherwise, I refuse to believe, I refuse to assume the worst about someone. Now imagine, and, and by the way, isn't that how you want to be treated? When you don't, when you forget that thing, uh, if I ask for a show of hands, everyone who I've promised to do something for and I haven't done it, I'm sure almost everyone will put their hands up here. So this is why I'm doing this. <laughs> when there is a gap between what you expected me to do and what I actually did, I really want you to believe the best of me. And I'm going to try to believe the best of you as well. Until you find out otherwise, until the evidence shows, no, I was just lazy, I was just at home, you know, playing games on my phone or something like that, ignoring you. Until you find out that, please assume the best. That's what it means to believe all things, isn't it? It's about believing people, about trusting people. When there is a gap between what I expect of you and what actually happens, I will choose to believe the best of you and I pray that you choose to believe the best of me. What a wonderful congregation this will be when we all choose to do that to one another. He finishes it with this. Love hopes all things. Have you given up hope on someone? Have you given up hope on, on a person or a situation or a relationship or a congregation or anything? Love doesn't do that. God didn't give up hope in you. And finally, love endures all things. Love doesn't stick around for a week after we've heard a lesson on love. Love goes the distance. Time after time. Um, hurt after hurt. Complaint after complaint. Love goes the distance. You know what the most beautiful thing about this passage is? This is not just a description of all the ways that you are falling short. This is a description of how much God loves you. And mum loves their baby. God is patient. He is kind. He is not irritable. He is not resentful. He bears. He believes. He hopes. He endures with you. So try to do that to your brethren. Your family, everyone you made in your life. Thank you.